Well, today, uh, on the heels of that, I want to jump right into what is week two of a series that I've called Sanctity of Life. And, you know, if you weren't here for last week's message, whenever we hear the phrase Sanctity of Life, oftentimes, immediately, our mind goes to political platforms or stances or um, or, or legal cases, but I want to just remind all of us that the sanctity of life is a biblical issue, and I believe with all issues, uh, when it comes down to those things that influence our opinion on topics, on our worldview, we ought to start with this premise, that our worldview should be most shaped by the one who shaped the world, and so whenever you're dealing with difficult topics, the first question, the, the most important question we should ask is, What has God already said about this? Has he spoken to this? Does he he weigh in on this subject? And so today, but with every Sunday in this church, we're going to go to God's word as the final authority of our faith, our conduct. Amen? So I want to invite you to get your Bibles out. Last week, we started the series on Sanctity of Life, talking about suicide and capital punishment, which i got to be honest, in... 20 plus years of ministry, first time ever preached a sermon on suicide and capital punishment together. But as I've been meditating on this, these are sanctity of life issues. So today we're going to give a day and give an hour of our time to talking about abortion, but also talking about euthanasia. Because all of life is sacred from the womb to the tomb. Amen. Before we go there, though, I just want to pause and and give a moment to acknowledge that this weekend is Martin Luther King Day, which means tomorrow most of our kids, whether we get you know a blizzard or not, they're going to have off school tomorrow. <coughs> and we get that day to, to stop and commemorate and honor an American hero who led the fight and ultimately died for equality of races in America. And I just want you to know that the racial issues are a sanctity of life issue. See, I believe our origin story with God is the foundation for everything that we believe about humanity, the way we treat people, the way we view people. Racial harmony was a major theme in the Word of God. In fact, I was thinking about the reality that the Bible begins and ends with a picture of racial harmony. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, he's called the father of our faith. And in Genesis 12, God speaks to him a promise and says, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be a nation. And through you, this nation, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was the picture God gave Abraham. And then you flip to the back of the book and you see in Revelation 7, God gives the apostle John a vision. And, and John says, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, and people, and language. They were all standing before the throne. In other words, it was a fulfillment of the the vision that God gave Abraham in the beginning of the word. And so appropriately, right in the middle of your Bible, right in the middle of the narrative of redemption, stands Jesus Christ. And Jesus dealt with that issue. See, if you don't know this, you can miss a lot of the impact of what happened in his life, but Jesus was born into a very segregated society. That's why it's so significant that, that Jesus would include women in his ministry. Ministry blessed children in a day and in an age when women and children were viewed as little more than property. Jesus valued people. 
The Samaritans were a group of people that Jews would, would not even talk to. They would literally take the long way around Samaria just so that they didn't have to go into their community. And yet Jesus went into their community. He went, in fact, in one place, he said, I must go through Samaria. Jesus healed Samaritans. He touched them. He revealed himself to be the son of God, firstly, to a Samaritan woman. So Jesus, time and time again, spoke to this issue. In John chapter 10, he spoke explicitly to his disciples. In verse 16, he said this, I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. How many of you know that's still God's plan for the church? One flock and one shepherd. Some of the most powerful words that were ever communicated about the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross were written by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2. If you have your Bible, I want you to go there with me. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is describing what happened at Calvary. He starts out by saying, you know, you that were not a people have now become a people. You who were far from God have been brought near. And he's not just talking about people that were sinners who didn't have a relationship with God. He's talking about people that were segregated, people that were not Jews. They weren't uh, circumcised Jewish men, a part of the covenant that God created with Israel. He said, you were not a part. And then he says, here's what happened at the cross. Verse 14, look at it with me, Ephesians 2, 14. He says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. <clears throat> now, can I tell you today, church, the wall of hostility that Paul was talking about, it, it was not only spiritual, it was not only societal, it was a physical wall. There was a literal wall of division in Jerusalem, and Paul was well aware of it. In fact, go with me quickly to Acts chapter 21, because Paul actually has a story recorded here of when he was in Jerusalem at that wall. See, in, in the inner courts of the temple, the most elite of society, the Jewish religious men, they could go into the inner courts of the temple. But then there was the outer courts, and that's where the Jewish women could go. But then there was this wall, this barrier, and none of the Gentile people could come in. They were segregated. In fact, there was a sign that hung on that wall and it had this phrase written in Greek and in Latin. It said, no one of another nation is to enter. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. So in Acts chapter 21, Paul was in the city of Jerusalem. And it says in verse 19, talking about the people that lived there, it said they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul. And they assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, because the sign on the door is no joke, they take it seriously. Here's an Ephesian, a Gentile, Trophimus, and Paul, they think, 
has brought him into the city. And because of that speculation, look at verse 30. It says, the whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. Now, if you want to know how serious they are, read on to the next verse. It says, while they were trying to kill him. <laughs> okay, so they're not playing games. They're not trying to intimidate him. They are physically trying to kill the Apostle Paul because they thought he brought Trophimus, the Ephesian, past the wall. So can you imagine what it must have been like years later when the church in Ephesus gets a letter from Paul and he writes in the second chapter, here's what happened at the cross. The barrier wall, the dividing wall of hostility was torn down because of what Jesus did on the cross so that you who couldn't come near can now come near. I just happen to think that maybe on that Sunday, Trophimus stood up and gave a testimony. Like, let me tell you about that wall. They are not playing about that wall. I saw them almost kick a hole in Paul's head because of that wall. But thank God, through the cross, the division has been broken down. The barriers have been broken down. Amen. It's alarming to me when I think about the arguments in our nation's history for slavery and how similar they are to the arguments today for the issue of abortion. Think about it. Slaveholders were saying, we have our rights. It's our money. The slaves belong to us. And other people would oppose them and say, no, what about their rights? They're human beings. Reminded of the words of William Wilberforce. He was the most famous abolitionist of the 18th and 19th centuries. And as he stood before the House of Commons in 1791, he said this. And, and this could be said of the issue of abortion today. But he was speaking, till we extinguish every trace of this bloody traffic of which our posterity, looking back to the history of this enlightened time, will scarce believe that it has been suffered to exist so long, a disgrace and a dishonor to this country. Those words could have been written to condemn the practice of abortion, this disgrace and dishonor, this bloody traffic of our generation. You should know this, that it's only been in the last few decades that there has been any voice in church history that has spoken up in favor of abortion. Historically, Jews and Christians alike have always been pro-life. The pagan worlds, the Roman and the Greek world, they were the influencers that took position for abortion and infanticide. In Nazi Germany, we saw a demonstration of the low view of life in the 1930s and 1940s. Their low view of life led to Auschwitz. In our generation, the low view of life has led to abortion on demand and euthanasia. Martin Luther, the reformer in the 1500s, said this, those who have no regard for a pregnant woman and do not spare the tender fruit are murderers and infanticides. John Calvin said, if it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house rather than in a field because a man's house is his most secure place of refuge, 
It ought surely to be more atrocious to destroy the unborn in the womb before it has come to light. Why have Christians always viewed it this way? Why have Jews always viewed it this way? Well, it's because the scripture is very clear. There's three things I want to just tell you quickly from scripture. Number one, God is in control. The scripture communicates over and over again the sovereignty of God. He's in control. He ordains and he maintains life. He determines when it begins. He determines when it ends. I love the way Jeremiah the prophet, or Isaiah rather, said it in Isaiah 64 verse 8. He said, yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. God is in control. Secondly, human life is sacred. We touched on this last week, looking at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, God made man in his own image. But I want to tell you today, God didn't just make man in his own image when he created him. Creation was created for man. See, the very next verse after Genesis 1, 27 goes on to say, rule over everything. Now that I've made man in my image, rule over the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. You're in charge. Have dominion. Be fruitful. Multiply. Creation was created for us. Not only was creation created for us, but redemption was purchased for us. I want to promise you, God did not send his son into the earth to save the whales. (laughs) He didn't send Jesus to die on a tree to save the trees. Now, I'm not against any of those initiatives. We ought to be good stewards of this green earth God's given us. But Jesus bankrupt heaven's account to save the souls of mankind. That's the bottom line. I've been asked the question before, will my pets be in heaven? Ooh, boy, that's a tough one. You got to be careful answering that question. You get people upset really quick. Well, the short answer is, I don't know. Will there be animals in heaven? Absolutely. The Bible mentions all kinds of animals in heaven. No doubt about that. Will it be your long lost pet? I don't know. But I do know that Jesus died on the cross to save our souls so that we could get into heaven. He didn't make that purchase for anyone else. So so creation was created for us. Redemption was purchased for us. But sanctification is happening in us. That's why our lives are sacred. There's not another species on the planet that the Holy Spirit is regenerating into the image of Jesus. My dog's nine years old now, and I can promise you she's not any more sanctified now than she was when we brought her home from the SPCA. But God's doing that in us. He's doing that in the souls of men. He's regenerating us by his Holy Spirit. God's in control. Human life is sacred. And thirdly, and this is important, God made us in the womb. He made us in the womb. Because come on, let's be honest, isn't that the issue? That's the bottom line question. Is that a person in the womb? That's what the debate always comes back to, right? I mean, I've never met a a pro-abortionist that is advocating for the murder of children. They would never use that language. It always comes back to the question of, is that a person in the womb? So we have to ask the question, what has God already said about this issue? Let me give you a few verses. Jot these references down. Psalm 119, verse 73. Your hands made me 
and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. What a great prayer to pray, especially for anyone that might be confused about God's plan for your life. Your hands made me, they formed me. Now give me understanding to learn your commands. Jeremiah chapter one and verse four says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Now that, that's powerful because he's saying, not only did I, I, I know you when you were born, I knew you before you were born. I knew you before you, you I had a plan for your life. That's what God says to Jeremiah. I had a purpose and a calling on your life before your identity was known. Luke chapter one, verse 41 says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the lump of tissue leaped in her womb. No, that's not what it says. Come on. The baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Psalm 51 and 5, David said to the Lord, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's a powerful verse because you know what that's doing? It's connecting our sinful nature to the moment of conception. Like we, we understand that all of us are sinners. We all deserve judgment. That's why everyone needs to call on the Lord to save them. But when did we become sinners? Was it when the doctor slapped you on the backside? Said, it's a boy, you heathen. No. David says it was the moment of conception. In other words, he's connecting our sinful nature to the seed of Adam. And because we're all the sons and daughters of Adam, every one of us who were born of the seed of man have been born in sin. That's why it's so important that we understand Jesus was conceived of a virgin. Luke 1.35, how is this going to be? The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. He's going to overshadow you. Why? Because Jesus had to be born sinless, not just live sinless. So we're sinful from conception. And, and probably the most famous text in all the Bible about the sanctity of life is Psalm 139. Psalm 139 begins in verse 1 saying, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. And then he just, he just starts to pontificate about all the ways that God knows him. He says, you know me when I get up. You know me when I lie down. You know the words that I say before they're on my tongue. You know my thoughts before I think them. If I go to the highest heavens, I can't hide from you. You're there. If I go to the depths of the sea, there you are. You're everywhere, God. And then he gets to verse 13, and, and look at what he says. He says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. We made every one of our daughters memorize that verse when they were little. You ought to know fully well that you were fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eye saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I read a powerful illustration last week I wanted to share with you today. 
The question that was asked was, would you consider abortion in the following situations? And isn't that the temptation that we would kind of separate circumstances and have different views? And so here's the four situations. Would you consider abortion? Number one, a preacher and his wife are very poor. They have 14 kids, and now she's pregnant with the 15th. They're living in abject poverty. Considering their poverty and the excess of world population, would you consider recommending an abortion? Number two, the father is sick with sniffles, and the mother has tuberculosis. They have four children. The first one is blind. The second one has already died. The third is deaf, and the fourth has TB. She finds out she's pregnant again. Given the extreme circumstances, would you consider recommending abortion? Number four, a white man rapes a 13-year-old black girl. She got pregnant. If you were her parents, would you recommend abortion? Number four, a teenage girl is pregnant. She's not married, but her fiancé is not the father of the baby. He's very angry. In this situation, would you recommend abortion? If so, in the first case, you've just killed John Wesley, one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century. In the second case, you've killed Beethoven. In the third case, you've killed Ethel Waters, the great black gospel singer. And if you said yes to the fourth case, you've murdered none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Life has value because God created it. It's not valuable because parents planned it. It's not valuable because it's perfectly healthy. It's not valuable because it's old enough or still young enough to add value culturally. Life is valuable because God is the author of life. There's no such thing as an illegitimate child. I've met lots of illegitimate parents but there's no such thing as an illegitimate child. Let's talk about euthanasia for just a moment. If you're unfamiliar with the term, the definition is the putting of a person to death by a deliberate act or by an intentional omission. And just like under the umbrella of choice, isn't that ironic? That at, at the end of both arguments is... The issue of man saying, I get to choose when life begins and when life ends, not God. And honestly, if we come to the conclusion that it is okay to end a life as it's nearing birth, how could we have any moral authority to tell someone they can't take a life when it's ending death? Physician-assisted suicide is the term I'm familiar with. Some of you are old enough to remember Dr. Kevorkian the doctor of death, but they've, they've changed the verbiage as we do with a lot of things in this era of political correctness. They now refer to it as medical aid in dying. And advocates boast the rising census approval numbers. But I can see where the confusion is. What, doesn't it sound merciful to offer medical aid to the dying? But you have to be careful with the words we use. It's medical aid in dying. And the reason that they use to qualify euthanasia is a low quality of life. So the argument is that, you know, it, it's an act of mercy that, that someone could be in the final stages uh, or dealing with a terminal illness and 
There's so much out of your control. This is one way that we can, as a, <coughs> as a sign of mercy, give you control, at least to say, this is when I want the suffering to end. And if you've ever had to watch a loved one in their final stages of a terminal illness, as I have many times, then it's easy to be empathetic to this logic, to just want the pain to stop. But the question that we have to wrestle with is this. Does hardship in life give me the right to play God? Problem is, in our American version of Christianity, we've come to believe that God's purpose and plan is that we are safe, that we're comfortable, that we're happy. Can I tell you, the Bible reveals God's plan primarily for your life is that he be glorified. That's the purpose. God's plan, creating you in his image, is for your purpose more than your pleasure. It's for your significance more than your safety. He's much more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness. And so when we don't understand the purpose of life, we begin to value life based on worldly principles. But I want to tell you, in the word of God, the sanctity of life is supreme, not the quality of that life. And I was reminded of that this Wednesday because I got the information of two people that were significant in my life that died on Wednesday. And this reality of the sanctity of life kind of converged in a unique way. The first announcement that I heard was about Dr. George Wood. He was the former leader of the Assemblies of God USA with its 3,240,258 adherents at the time of his resignation in 2017. But from 2008 to present, he's also been the chairman of the World Assemblies of God Fellowship, the world's largest Pentecostal body with over 160 member countries representing over 70 million adherents. I can promise you his life and his death on Wednesday touched millions of people. But after I got home from our midweek prayer gathering on Wednesday, I heard the news of another death. The first wedding I ever performed was for two of our students in our youth ministry in Texas. Justin and Amanda actually met at youth group, and they started dating on a youth missions trip. But you got to be careful about those youth missions trips because, you know, things can happen. And I did their wedding, and then five years ago, God blessed them with a second son, Mason Reed. He was born with severe health complications. The doctors told them he probably won't survive six months. But on Wednesday of this past week, Mason died in his parents' arms. God blessed them with five incredibly hard but incredibly precious years. Years they wouldn't trade for anything. Life is precious. Not because of the quality of life or the influence of the life, but because the creator of life. I was reminded again this week as um, I saw a post on Facebook from one of our students, Olivia, who's sitting here on the front row. Uh, Olivia Hawk's little brother was 
uh, turning one this past week. And we've been praying for Grayson's healing for a year now. He was born with Dravet's syndrome. And on his birthday, she, she posted this, and it touched my heart. She said, you fought more battles in 12 months than I've fought in 14 years. With every prayer in my heart, I wish that you'd get better. And even if you don't, I would never ask for a different little brother. That touched me when I read that because at 14 years old, Olivia gets it. Life is precious. Not because the length or the quality of it, because the author of it, life is precious. There are some Christians that, that hear issues like this and, and would say, I agree. And tell somebody else they're wrong. I can't, I can't say it's wrong for you. For me, it's wrong. But can I push back on that a little bit and say, yes, you can. Yes, you, in fact, you have an obligation. The word communicates to us in Ezekiel 33 that, that, that God instructed the nation of Israel to place watchmen on the walls of the city. And their responsibility was to watch the horizon for the swords of their enemies. And he said the, the, the enemies would come, but if they come and the watchman doesn't warn the people, they may die, but their blood will be on his hands. And then God says to Ezekiel in verse 7 and 8, he said, I've posted you, and he's speaking prophetically to the church, I've posted you as watchmen on the walls. And the sword of God's judgment is coming against the nation. But if you don't warn people of the truth, they will die in their sins, but their blood will be on your hands. Those are sobering words. God has given us the opportunity to be a voice of truth. Proverbs 31.8 says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the right of all who are destitute. I read a story years ago. I've shared it in this pulpit, but it bears repeating today. It was told by an old weeping Christian man. <laughs> he writes, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. I attended church since I was a small boy. We had heard the stories of what was happening to the Jews, but like most people in this country, we, tr we tried to distance ourselves from the reality of what was really taking place, what could anybody do? He says, a railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning, we would hear the whistle from the distance, and, and then the clacking of the wheels moving over the track. We became disturbed one Sunday when we noticed cries coming from the train as it passed by we grimly realized that the train was carrying Jews. They were like cattle in those cars. Week after week, the train whistle would blow, and we would dread to hear the sound of those old wheels because we knew that the Jews would begin to cry out as they passed by our church. So, so terribly disturbing. We could do nothing to help these poor, miserable people, and yet their screams tormented us. After a few weeks, we knew exactly what time the whistle would blow. 
We decided that the only way to keep from being so disturbed by the cries was to start singing our hymns. By the time the train came rumbling past the churchyard, we were singing at the top of our voices. If some of the screams reached our ears, we'd just sing a little louder until they could be heard no more. Years passed, and no one talks about it anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. I can still hear them crying for our help. God forgive us, he writes, for calling ourselves Christians and yet doing nothing to intervene. Ellie Weisel, who was a survivor of the Holocaust, wrote, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. The opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and I want to attempt to answer the question that I feel like might just be lingering in the air after a message like this. The question is, so what do we do? (laughs) What do I do with that? What do I do with what God has said? And there's three things I want to tell you. Number one, we pray. We pray. And I don't say that as some Christian cliche or some way of just Jesus juking my way out of a tough topic. Oh, we'll just pray about it. No, I say that because the Bible is clear. In Ephesians 6, 12, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. This is not about policy or politics or Supreme Court decisions. We are wrestling against principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. There's a spiritual warfare. In Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20 is a stern warning to our nation. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. We have to pray, church. We have to pray that God would stop the bloody trail in our generation. The second thing we should do is we should support ministries like Align. We should support the pregnancy centers, those people that are on the front lines in the most practical way, meeting people at the point of need. At the very least, financially, or maybe more, to volunteer, to serve. You know, I was in Orlando in August of this last year, and I was at the General Council of the Assemblies of God, and there at that convention, they announced a new initiative in our fellowship focusing on involvement in foster care. And and I'll be honest, my my heart always... Because how many of you know it's not fair that we get riled up about the birth of a child and then be careless about the life of that child? The last thing I'd want to be is hypocritical in our convictions. So we have to look for ways to serve. It was timely and maybe even sovereign that yesterday, after our men's breakfast, I was in my office. I was actually looking over the notes for this message, and I got interrupted by an email invitation. For tomorrow, I'll be a part of a a Zoom meeting with pastors all over the Pennsylvania-Delaware district speaking with leaders about how the church can get involved in foster care ministry. And I got home last night from our serve team party 
saw the stack of mail sitting there on the counter and there's a newspaper that I subscribe to and the, the cover article, the feature story is the church and foster care. I don't know if God works in your life that way like he does mine, but I kind of start picking up on stuff after a while. But I say that to say we should do something. We should get involved in big ways, in small ways. And the third thing we ought to do, not just pray or support local ministries, but the third thing, and this is so important, we should proclaim the gospel. Hear me, again, I'm I'm not just throwing out church verbiage. We ought to proclaim the gospel because the gospel is not the power of God unto new legislation or new policies. Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And if you want to change somebody's mind, aim about 18 inches lower. Let the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrate their heart. Let it tear down the barrier wall of hostility. Let it peel away the heart of stone and restore it with a heart of clay. What we don't need in our generation is a developed pro-life theoreticians. What we need is a gospel herald, a people that would declare the word of the Lord because James the brother of Jesus really hit the nail on the head when he said what our problem is the sanctity of life issue is a sin problem and he said in James chapter 1 when sin is full grown it gives birth to death that's the issue we've got to deal with sin So God's called us to proclaim his gospel. I want to invite you to stand with me all over this room. As Darlene testified earlier in this service, I know for a fact there are people in our church, maybe people in this gathering, who've had personal stories. You've been impacted by these issues. Maybe navigating the end of life with a loved one or an abortion story of your own. But I want you to know, I feel no compulsion at all to stand up here and condemn somebody for something that happened in their past. The Bible says in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm here to tell you the good news. I'm here to tell you that there's hope and that there's life on the other side of an empty tomb. And so we're going to open these altars for a moment of prayer.